Last week, uh, Rob talked to us about um, Jesus teaching in the, in the Gospels of, about loving our neighbor, and he was asked the question, who is our neighbor? And he gave us the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the enemy of the Jewish people turned out to be the one who was the best neighbor. This week, we're going to take a look at the Old Testament verse that Jesus was quoting. He quotes from this verse, love your neighbor as yourself, at least three different times in the Gospels. Paul also quotes it in, in his letters. It's a very important verse. Jesus calls it the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Today, we're going to go back to the place where they're quoting and we're going to take a look at the verses that lead up to that to help us understand what that really means from God's perspective. And it'll be challenging, it'll be fun, and through it all, we can all remember that none of us is perfect, and God is the one who helps us accomplish the things that he wants us to do and to become the person he wants us to be. So, we're in Leviticus 19, and we're going to look at the first 18 verses. So let's look at verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, you notice that word Lord is spelled in all capital letters. You find that throughout the Old Testament. You see the word Lord in all capital letters. Now, the Hebrew word for Lord was Adonai, but this isn't the word Adonai. Whenever the Hebrew word was Adonai and they translated it into Lord, it's spelled with small letters. This is actually the name of God. God has a name, a name that he gives himself and wants to be known by. But what happened was the, the Jewish people, normally they passed on Scripture through reading it to people. They taught through reading God's Word. And they were always afraid, almost a superstitious belief that if they somehow said God's name with the wrong attitudes in their heart or, or the wrong way, then they'd really get in trouble from God for that. And so they didn't want to pronounce the name out loud. So they would use, substitute the word Adonai. They'd actually write it in the margin above so the reader would be reminded, oh, don't say, don't say that name. Say the word Adonai instead. <clears throat> well, eventually, um, not terribly long after Jesus was on the earth, Hebrew became a dead language. And since nobody was pronouncing God's name out loud, they forgot how it was pronounced. Because you see, in Hebrew, you only have consonants. You don't have vowels. When you're learning Hebrew, there are little vowel signs that tell you how to pronounce it, but not in Scripture. It was just all consonants. They didn't know how to pronounce it. And so the name was pretty much forgotten, and they just used the word Lord whenever they translated it into different languages. And one of the early translators of the Bible into English, he saw that and he said, God wants to be known by this name, but I don't know what it, we don't know how, I don't know how it's pronounced. So what he did was he combined the consonants from God's name with the vowels of the word Adonai, and he came up with Jehovah. That's where that word came from. But when he put that in his Bible, people said, oh, it's got a weird name in it. We don't want this Bible. We want the one we're familiar with. And so they didn't buy his, and all the other translators continued with the practice of putting Lord in, in, in the place of God's name. And eventually the custom came 
to put it in all capital letters so that people would know that this was God's name. In fact, in most of your Bibles, if you go right to the very front, there's usually a preface or a letter from the translators, and they'll explain that to you, that they're doing it, because nobody wants to put God's name in the Bible and not have anybody buy their Bibles because that's how they pay the translators and that's how they pay for printing and all of that. So they continue with the convention. But he does have a name. And within the last half of the last century, with all the different archaeological discoveries and finding all kinds of ancient documents, scholars would study these things and they figured out that the name, the most likely pronunciation of God's name is the word Yahweh. You've, you've, you've probably seen it if you've been around for a while. In a couple of our songs, we use that word. That's God's chosen name. And it, even though it's only four letters long, it's a very complex name. And what it literally translates to is, I was who I was, I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. Essentially, God is saying, I exist. And when you read that in the Old Testament, you'll find that a lot of times when God is using that name of himself, he's contrasting himself with all of the other idols that people have invented. He's saying, I am the only one who can say of himself, I exist, I am real. So when I speak, you really need to listen because I know what I'm talking about. I was just reading in Jeremiah a few days ago where God is speaking of the other idols And he's comforting Jeremiah because Jeremiah is kind of afraid of this mission that God has put him on. He says, they can't help you, neither can they hurt you because they're not real. They're just all made up. And so when God uses his name, he's reminding us that he's real. Here's, let me just read you uh, something from Exodus. This is the story from Moses when he saw the burning bush and he went up to the burning bush and God spoke to him out of this bush. And in the course of the conversation, Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Because remember, they're in Egypt. And in Egypt, they have all kinds of gods. And all these gods each have their own name. And many of the Israelites have been worshiping these gods. So Moses is saying, if they ask me what your name is, what do I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And that's a literal translation of the Hebrew name. This is what you are to say to the Israel. The Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And so God wants us to know his name and to remember his name. And when he uses it, it's intended to be an emphasis for us to pay attention. And, and he uses his name throughout the passage we're going to be looking at today. And so I've put his name in instead of Lord in all capital letters, which you'd find in your own Bible. And so that's why you'll see this name in these verses. Let's go to verse two. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Now, 
we've talked about what the word holiness means. It's one of those scary words. Oh, holy, oh no, we don't want to, we need to be real careful. But holy essentially means without flaw, without any contamination. Um, best verse I, I know of that, that defines it is in 2 Corinthians, and it says, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. See, God lives in this perfect state of goodness. There's absolutely nothing tainted, and he wants us to experience that. Of course, he knows we're not perfect. We're not perfect at all. And so part of what God is doing in our lives is gradually helping us to eliminate all those impurities, the things that contaminate our lives, the things that make our lives and the lives of the people around us worse. And so God is gradually taking these things away. And so he's going to give a series of commands here. He's saying, if you want to be holy, here are the commands. Here's what I'm telling you is pure and good will make your life better and the lives of the people around you better. And so, in verse three, we get the first, first two of these commands. It's really interesting to me that the first command God goes to is each of you must respect his mother and father. Now, usually we give that command to, the, to kids, right? Because we want them to, to obey us and we want them to respect us. And, and, and it's true, it is a command with kids and, and it comes with a promise that if you honor your mother and father, if you respect your mother and father, you're going to live longer. It's not some kind of magic thing, you do this and you live longer, it's the fact that you'll gain wisdom from then, you'll gain insight into life, you'll be able to handle life better. But this is not just for kids, it's for all of us. Notice it doesn't say each of you must obey his father, his mother and father, it says respect. The word respect most often is used in the Old Testament as something we're supposed to do for God. It's the highest form of, of reverence and respect. And I know some of us didn't grow up with good parents. Maybe some of us here didn't even know their real parents. Um, in that case, you had other people who served as your mother and father. Um, but even if our parents were not good to us, either because they were just very flawed and they, they abused us. Did, you know, sometimes parents are guilty of the worst things against their kids. Or if it's just that they didn't know how to be parents and so they just didn't do the things that most good parents did even though they really loved us. Um, I know I grew up in a, in a home where we never talked. I never had a meaningful conversation with my mom and dad. And that, that affects me to this day. But at the same time, I had to come to the point as I became an adult to respect my mother and father because God says you need to do that. And so I had to take a look at them and, and forgive them for the things that I was angry about and respect them. One of the reasons this is important is because the way we relate to our mom and dad affects the way we relate to God. And... Uh, and I know for those of you who had really difficult uh, lives growing up because of, of your parents' neglect or, or just the fact that they were too busy or just they didn't know what to do, 
Uh, it, it affects you today, and one of the ways that you can start canceling the negative effects in your life is to, is to take a look and, and come, forgive them if they need to be forgiven, and then to get to the point where you can really respect who they were and what they did, um, because it's just really important. That's why God starts off with this. The second part of this verse says, and must, you must obey my Sabbaths. I am Yahweh, your God. So pay attention when I say this. Now, the Old Testament Sabbath doesn't really translate well into our lives today because our culture is wholly different. In the Old Testament, most people work seven days a week and God was saying, I want you to take a day off so you can rest and relax and restore yourself. Well, today if we take a day off, everybody else is usually taking off more time than that. So um, it doesn't really translate over well. But here's what God is saying as far as I can figure. I've got three things here. One, the Sabbath rest, the purpose of it is for refreshing and restoration. You need time to refresh, time to be restored, time to recover from the hard work you've done. Not just you, but your, your family needs that. Your kids actually need that. Your, your employees need that. God even says the animals need time to refresh and restore. The land itself needs time to refresh and to restore. And so he had all these regulations in the Old Testament to help the Israelites do that. But we need to make sure we're setting aside time for physical, mental, and spiritual restoration. That that's not, and oh, it's my day off, so I'm going to go out and mow the lawn and, and fix the things around the house and do those things. That's important, and you can do that with your spare time, but you also need a time for rest, for restoration, for refreshment. Um, you know, get your chores done, but that's not what God means by a Sabbath rest. Secondly, your rest also allows others to rest as well. Um, he had to tell the Israelites, you know, just because you're resting doesn't mean you get the servants to do all your work. They get the day off too because they need refreshment and restoration. I was trying to figure out how do we translate this into this day? And I mean, the obvious thing that pops into my head is, well, like, you know, we go out to dinner and because we don't want to cook. We, we just want to relax around a good meal. And so we get other people to cook it for us. Is that stealing their opportunity to rest and restore? No, because they get days off. They'll also have the chance to do that. But at the same time, if we see somebody who's just working constantly, maybe it's because they have a family to support and they can only get minimum wage jobs, we need to make sure that we're not the ones who take up the only time they have to just relax, to spend time with their family doing something fun, doing something restorative. And the third thing that makes it Sabbath rest is we do it in the presence of God. Now for the Old Testament, they would go to the temple or they would, they would uh, go to synagogue and start it that way um, with some kind of service. But rest and restoration, refreshing, it's not necessarily going to church. We need to go to the church. It's important to have fellowship with other people. And worship can be restorative. It can be refreshing. But the best way that I've found when I'm taking time off and I'm going off just to do things without any kind of stress, just to relax, things that I enjoy, is I add the idea of thanksgiving. I've been really working on myself 
to try to notice things. And every time I see something good, I just whisper a little word of thanks. That reminds me that God is with me. And he's always with us, but we don't always think about it. And so to be a Sabbath rest, to be truly restored and refreshed, we need to know that God is there with us. And he's enjoying this time, just as he wants us to enjoy that time. And he's the one who is going to do the actual refreshing, the actual restoration. Verse 4. Do not turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourselves. I am Yahweh, your God. And here, the name Yahweh is especially important because it means I actually exist. Unlike those other gods, I actually exist. So don't do anything to to make idols that you're going to... uh, Worship, or you're going to think or will bring you good luck or whatever it is. Now, we don't, it's difficult to translate directly the idolatry in the ancient world where they would carve things and then say, okay, this is our God now, and then they started worshiping it to the modern day because we, we don't do a whole lot of that. But we do somewhat. We have objects of superstition. Those are actually idols. Say, I carry a rabbit's foot for, for good luck. Well, that means you're putting your trust in that rabbit's foot, which is nothing more than an inanimate object at that time, unless it's still on the rabbit, of course. Um, but, but, you know, our superstitions are putting our hope and our trust in things that really don't work. There's nothing to any superstition. Um, Going a step further, anything that we rely on to make us happy or successful can be considered an idol that we should avoid. I know people who, having a boat that they can take out on their day off, and this is going to make my life so much better if I can just get a boat, or if I can just get this expensive car to show off, it'll make my life better. Or if I can just have this bank account that, that is just sitting there making me happy because I'm rich. Those are things we're putting our trust in. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Nothing wrong with having a boat, a car, or a bank account. Nothing wrong with being rich, for that matter. Um, But when we entrust those things with making us happy or giving us joy in life, that's idolatry because they're inanimate objects. They're not real. But Yahweh is the one who exists I am Yahweh. I'm the one who actually loves you. I'm the one who actually does things for you. I'm the one who actually protects you, provides for you. It's not the stuff that makes it wrong. It's our willingness that makes it wrong. It's our willingness to give things power over our well-being. And then one last thing here. In the New Testament, twice, greed is identified as idolatry. And I think we know when we're being greedy, but it's often enjoyable to be greedy because we're thinking of ourselves and we're getting stuff for ourselves. But we're really trusting in ourselves and making ourselves the object of of everything. I'll just let you think that through. Verse five. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to Yahweh, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. And then it goes on to the different to describe the proper way you're supposed to have a fellowship offering. And 
The fellowship offering was something they had in among all of their other offerings and sacrifices, which we don't do today because Jesus ended all that when he died on the cross. He said, you don't need to sacrifice things in order to be forgiven for the wrong things you've done. I'm taking care of that by dying for you. Um, and so the, the specific things that they had to do to make the offering acceptable are not necessarily something that helps us. But there are some things that can help us understand what the fellowship offering means for us. It says it's to acknowledge God's blessing. The fellowship offering was a free will offering. Whereas in the other offerings, if you, if you did something wrong, you broke one of God's laws, well, in order to take care of that with God, we have, they had to bring offerings, and this was required. But the fellowship offering was free will. It was optional. It was something you decided. And it was always done to celebrate God's blessing. Sometimes it was just God has made my life so good, I just want to give him something in exchange. Or it may be a reference to a specific blessing that God has given you. And you say, wow, look what God did. I want to acknowledge this because it really makes me love him and it shows how much he loves me. So the first thing to make this kind of gift appropriate is that you enjoy it in God's, ble- in God's presence. And of course, God is everywhere. And so his presence can be where you are. And one of the ways to really become aware of, to make yourself aware of God's presence is to, to be thankful and, and to give it to, just to offer your thanks and to recognize that we're enjoying this blessing with God here. And so we should let him enjoy it as well. Secondly, you share the offering with God. In the original fellowship offering, right off the top, there was a certain part of the animal that they would bring and they would burn it up. Be all gone, just ashes. That was God's portion. Because, you know, when you invite somebody to share a meal with you, they're going to eat part of that meal. You don't expect them not to. But since God is God, he's not going to actually physically eat, but you're still going to take something and recognize I'm sharing this with you. And so um, we just need to find a way personally to share it with God. Now, one way we do that sometimes, and it's not the only way, is we, we give a special gift to the church, and that's God's portion. Um, but there, there are other things that, that you can think of, and, and you know, between you and God, you can come up with ways to just share with him. Third, you share the offering with others. Another part of the original fellowship offering would go to the priests and Levites because they were there at the temple and they'd be helping you with the sacrifice and whatever else you needed. And so just invite somebody else to share that, if, if, it's, if it's a meal you want to do or if it's, if it's uh, some kind of uh, financial thing, just bring somebody in to share the pleasure with you so that they can also share in the blessing that God has done. And fourth, create an atmosphere of joy. It's not supposed to be something where you solemnly bring, this is for you, O oh Lord. It's something, you've blessed me, man, and it's so fantastic, and it should be a joyful occasion. And, and so that's how we might be able to keep that particular command. Verse 9, 
When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am Yahweh your God. I care about the poor. I care about the travelers. One of the biggest differences we have in, in this, it's called gleaning, is that in, in the days that this was written, every road would be lined on both sides with fields and orchards and vineyards. And so for the stranger or the poor person, the homeless person, it's very simple for them to, you know, and climb over the fence and pick up what was left after the harvest. Of course, a lot of landowners didn't do that. They didn't obey this command. And if you went into their land to get the gleanings, they'd beat you or you wouldn't find anything because they would take every little thing they could find. Um, but those who were faithful to God always let it left something there for the travelers, for the poor. Well, we can't very well invite people to climb over your fence into your backyard and start rummaging through your garden. That, that wouldn't work too well. Uh, <laughs> it'd be pretty scary too. And so we can't do the gleaning in the same way. But my suggestion would be, one, Jesus taught us don't keep track of what you give. And he was specifically talking about, about offerings to the poor and, and to people who are in need. Just don't keep track of it. Because this is, it's not part of your money, it's not part of your budget, it's just what's left over. Secondly, in Ephesians, God says get a job so that you can earn money so that you'll have something to share with the poor. Um, plan on being a generous person. And here's the key, I think. Don't budget your entire income. Don't take everything you're going to earn and budget it all, this much for clothes, this much for rent, this much for PUD, this much for savings, and then the whole thing is taken care of. Leave room around the edges of your budget so that you can give spontaneously to situations that you need. I mean, when you drive around, every once in a while, there's, you see somebody say, man, I want to do something there. Just leave a little room in your budget to, to give that person a little something. I, I, I've been thinking this through a lot, and and uh, I don't see a scriptural requirement to, to give something to every person that's out there begging. But as God leads you and as he nudges you, you need to have something in the, in the margins of your budget that you can do because he will do that. And it's part of his character to care for the poor and we need to have that as well. Okay, verse 11. This is something we can understand real easily. Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Well, most of us aren't thieves and we're not going to go out to steal. We're not going to intentionally go out telling lies or deceiving people. But there are a lot of ways that we do that without even thinking. I know one of the things that I'm really guilty of is, you know, somebody will call me up and say, hey, you want to go out to dinner or you want to go do this or that and... and that particular time, I'm thinking, no, I've, there's other things I'd rather be doing or I just don't want to spend time with that person. <laughs> or, you know, those things that we all think. Um, and, and so I, I'll make up a little lie of why I can't go to dinner with him. Well, 
that says I shouldn't do that. And I've been convicted of that in my own life um, and, and other types of things. Um, you know, we, we have to not deceive each other. And that's the real definition of what God means by lying because we can technically tell the truth and still deceive people by choosing our words carefully. It's the deception that matters. I mean, for instance, you know, when, when your wife says, you know, do I look good in this? You know, you guys know that that's a real minefield, right? You're not, you're not, and if she does, great, you know, you, the praise flows. But when, she, when it's not really the right thing, you have to be really careful there. And, and so you're not necessarily going to tell the truth. But it's not your intention to deceive her, to trick her. And the same thing for, for the wives when your husband asks you about, about something. Maybe, hey, what, you know. When did you go out and buy that? And, or, I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm worried here that I'm going to break in, be stereotypical, and, and that's not a good thing. But you know, we, there are those lies of kindness, right? That's not what he's talking about, because sometimes we, we tell half-truths to prevent ourselves from hurting anybody's feeling or just to prevent ourselves from an argument or whatever. Um, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about things we do to deceive, and I think you know when you're doing that, so we don't have to spend time. I don't have, it's not my job to convict you of that. That's God's job, his spirit who lives in you. Verse 12, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. Now, a lot of times we, we look at, at this in the equivalent uh, verse in the Ten Commandments and we think, well, he's talking about, about what we call swearing, using vulgar language. And it's, it's not talking about that. What he's talking about is, is making promises and invoking God's name or making statements and we know other people aren't likely to believe and so we always add something on. When I was a kid, it was always, you know, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye as though that ensures that I'm telling the truth. Um, so, or, or people will, will then make a vow and they will invoke God's name. On my mother's grave, I will pay you this much every month. And, and God says, don't do that. Because you're human. And sometimes you're not going to be able to keep that vow. And so it's better to not make any promises and do it than it is to make a promise and not do it. And so we need, we need to be careful there. Um, and here's the real key. In, in the book of James, he says, above all my brothers, and here he's referring to teachings that Jesus made, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. He's talking about a serious issue here. And the issue is simply, Live lives so that when you say something, people will trust you. So if somebody asks you to do something, all you have to do is say, sure, I'll do that. And they know you're going to do it. You don't have to add on anything. Um, you know, may God strike me dead if I don't. You know, you know when, when we say that, we're kind of disbelieving God at that moment, I think. Um, so just live your lives with integrity so that when you say yes or when you say no, people believe you. It's, it's, it's pretty simple. But there's a second aspect of this that I think is important in our day and age. 
And that is to not use our faith to gain influence over other people. You see this sometimes in, in business. I can remember um, oh, back in the late 70s, I was a youth leader and, and my kids gave me this really nice radio and tape player. That dates it, it was a cassette tape player. And, um, and I, I love playing my cassettes on that thing, but one day it broke, it stopped working and I needed to fix it. Well, there was a guy over on Highway 99 who fixed uh, electronic devices. And he had a little fish in his window and he advertised in the Christian Yellow Pages. Um, and so I said, oh, I'll, I'll take this to him. Uh, you know, fellow believer, I'll allow him the chance to earn some money. And so I took it to him, came back when, it, when I was supposed to and it wasn't ready yet, had to wait another week, came back finally, okay, here it is. And, took it home, the thing didn't work. He hadn't done anything but take my money. Now, if I had not been a believer, if I had been just somebody off the street saying, oh, this guy's a Christian, maybe I can trust him to do a good job. They walked in and had been treated that way. They're not just gonna take it out on him, but they're gonna take it out on his God. And so we have to be very, very careful not to use our faith to try to get people's business or to try to influence somebody unfairly for some kind of selfish interest. And when we do things don't that are, you know, we certainly, when we fall short in the things that we do, we don't want to be advertising the fact that we're followers of God. Even though we're imperfect and we're just like everybody else, we make mistakes, people will blame God on what we do. And we just shouldn't do that. Okay, the next three commands, they all kind of come together. Verse 13. And, and these commands, they all have to do with the way we treat our neighbors, the people around us. I'm, did I, yeah, 13, verse 13. Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. means we shouldn't be trying to talk our neighbors into, you know, we've gotten ourselves into a pyramid scheme and we know we need to recruit more people so we'll get back our investment and so we talk our neighbors in, into it knowing maybe without thinking that they're going to lose their investment. But that, that's a way of defrauding your neighbor. Um, don't get them involved in things where they're going to lose their money. And don't rob them. Do we borrow and forget to give back? I mean, we do that sometimes. Um, and just because we have a lousy neighbor doesn't give us the, the right to either defraud him or to rob him. We just shouldn't do it. Okay, do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. There are at least four other times in Scripture where God says this. That means it's pretty important. What it's talking about is somebody's hired to do a job. And in, in biblical times, most jobs were day labor jobs. You'd do the work, and then at the end of the day, you'd get a day's wage. That would cover your expenses and your family's expenses for the following day when you'd be out working for the next day. Um, and, and so God took it very seriously when people hired somebody and they said, oh, don't worry about it, I'll give it to you tomorrow. Modern day example, I used to be involved in a, 
a ministry called Friends Puppets. I did that for 30 years, and we'd travel around doing programs for schools, public schools, and, and programs for churches, and we made our income uh, in three ways. We had a group of people who supported us monthly, plus we would go out and get grants so that we could bring uh, our programs to the public schools for free because they didn't have any money in their budgets for it. And then we would go, churches would ask us to come and do special programs for them, and most of the time it was on a free will basis. We'll, we'll just, whatever you can afford to give us for this, we'll We'll come and do the, the work. And, and even a, a few churches that said, we just don't have anything to give you. And they said, okay, we'll come anyway. Um, because it was a ministry for them. But we had churches that would often take up a free will offering for us at the end of our, our presentation if it was for the whole church. And they'd come up, they'd have the money in a bag and say, well, the guy who writes the checks, he isn't here tonight, so we'll get this off to you, you know, first, first thing tomorrow. And, uh, okay, we'll do that. And then a month later, we hadn't gotten anything, so we have to, you know, get, make a little phone call. You know, did you forget about this? Oh, no, 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 we've got it right here. We'll, we'll, we'll get it right off. We're sorry we didn't get it to you. Two months later, we still hadn't gotten it. And what they don't realize is that we needed that money to put gas in our van, to pay our different expenses, to pay our bills so that we wouldn't, so that people wouldn't accuse us of, of not paying our bills. And... And these were Christians, these were churches that were treating us that way, breaking this command. If you've hired somebody to do something and you've got the ability to pay them, pay them. Don't put it off. Um, obviously, if you don't have the money, if th- something has happened and, and you no longer have that money, you need to be honest and, and make an arrangement with him. But that's just living with integrity. Verse 14 this is the third of the, of the three items. Do not curse the de- deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am Yahweh. I'm real, and if you make me upset, I'm going to act on that because I'm real, not like those other gods. You know, you say, who would do that? Well, obviously people do curse the deaf and put a stumbling block in front of the blind. That's because sometimes people with handicaps or disabilities, they make life less convenient for us. I, can rem- I ride the bus all the time. And I can remember a number of years ago, every time I was on the bus and we'd pull up to a stop and I'd see somebody out there with a wheelchair. So, oh, you know, I hadn't learned much patience then. And, and so I said, oh man, I want to get where we're going. I don't want to have to stop and wait for the bus driver to fiddle with the lift and get the person on the bus and then buckle them up. And, and this was years ago when the lifts weren't as reliable as they are now. And so sometimes we'd be there for 15 minutes trying to get this person on. And under my breath, I said, oh man, I hate it when they get on like this. And, and I was cursing the deaf. I was cursing the, the person who couldn't walk in my head. Didn't realize it, but that's what, exactly what I was doing. And God says, don't do that. And one day God impressed upon me that, you know, when you get older, you may need this convenience as well. And of course, I've learned patience. I've learned that, you know, God will get me to where I'm going when I need to be there. And I try not to do that anymore, but sometimes... In an organization like the church, we have to spend some money to give people with various disabilities and handicaps access to our building. 
And we don't like that because it's money we hadn't planned on spending. But when you stop and think about it, these are people that God wants us to minister to. Why would we not want them to have access? So let's try to have the same attitudes toward them as, as God does. Verse 15, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. We do this all the time without thinking about it. Churches do it. They, they favor people who are the big givers over people who don't give anything. They favor people who wear the nice clothes. Um, here, that doesn't matter. But, um, but I, I know there are churches where if you come in and your clothes aren't nice enough, you have to sit in the back. Or you're asked to never come back unless you, until you get some better clothes. Um, that happens. We shouldn't show partiality to people. It, and it can be hard sometimes when those people are our friends. Um, but let's not do that. Verse 16, do not go about spending slander among your people. Spreading splant. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am Yahweh. Don't spread information unless you absolutely know it's true and you absolutely know it's not going to hurt the person you're talking about. I mean, when you have good news, everybody wants to hear and everybody likes getting it spread unless, unless there's a reason for keeping something secret, then, then we should keep our mouths closed. But even, you know, and, and a lot of times something sounds true and it it's, gives you a great feeling when you have news that other people don't know, doesn't it? You say, hey, guess what I just heard? And they, they don't know it and it gives you a great feeling that I knew something they didn't and I get to pass it on. Um, it's a huge temptation. It, and we do that without even checking to make sure it's really true or asking if, if that person would mind you know, t- telling somebody else about it. And, and of course, I'm gonna try to make this very quick. I don't wanna get into this in any detail. In our political climate today, we see people constantly talking about things that they've heard in political propaganda and if propaganda is what we want to believe, we usually believe it. And we, we spread it, and often it's not true. And it doesn't matter what side you're on. Uh, I don't think in, in po- political discussions we should never, ever portray somebody on the other side of an issue as stupid or evil. Because they're not. They're just people who care about the issue as much as we do on, just on the other side. Because in our political pl- climate today, we're actually encouraging a lot of these acts of violence that we're seeing. Because we are spreading the, this slander that people are evil or that they're just stup- too stupid to know the truth. And we shouldn't do that. We need to be passionately committed to truth wherever it leads because God is a God of truth. Verse 17, do not hate your neighbor in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in his guilt. First, we're not supposed to hate our neighbor no matter what they've done. We have to find a way to love them, and God can help us with that. If we just, I'm struggling with this, teach me how to love this person. But then on the other hand, he says, rebuke your neighbor frankly. If they're doing something they shouldn't be doing, if you don't rebuke them, if you don't be honest with them, you're going to share in the guilt. 
Now, this is a problem. You've got a neighbor with a barking dog and everybody in the neighborhood hates them because of their dog is barking. You walk over there, hey, can you keep your dog from barking? How successful is that going to be? Probably not at all. It's simply going to create more hostility. So what you have to do before you can even think about keeping this command is you need to establish a good relationship with your neighbor before you discover what kind of neighbor he is or she is. Find ways to establish the neighbor so that he knows that you don't, you're a good person, that, that you care about him. And then if there's a problem, instead of talking behind his back, you just talk face to face. Not angry, but just frankly and honestly. God says that's how you solve those kind of issues. And lastly, verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Several times in the Bible, God says don't seek revenge. He says it's my job. If revenge needs to be taken, I will do it. And I am Yahweh. I really exist. I can do it. No other God can do it for you, but I can do it. So I'm setting you free from this idea of vengeance. You don't have to get back at somebody because I'll take care of it in a way that's wise and the way that's really going to make a difference. If we love our neighbors as ourselves, we'll automatically fulfill all of those commands. If you're not fulfilling those commands, you're not loving your neighbor. That's what Paul says in Romans 13. He says... Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. 